The Federal Reserve keeps interest rates in place for now, but expects more hikes this year to help curb inflation. It's Thursday, June 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, medical schools in states with abortion bans face new restrictions on what they can teach. Students are needing to travel out of state to get training in abortion care, which they need to keep their patients safe. Also this hour, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, joins the crowded field of Republican presidential candidates. And we take a tour of the new observation deck at the top of the Prudential Center, 52 stories above Boston. Kind of feels like we're eye level with the clouds, or maybe I could reach up and touch the clouds if I were taller. Forecast, mostly sunny today, highs in the 70s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Delegates from several nations supporting Ukraine are at NATO headquarters today. They're talking about further aid to that country. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says that Ukraine's anticipated counteroffensive against Russia will take time, but he says it is showing some initial success. The support NATO allies have been giving to Ukraine now for many, many months actually makes a difference uh, on the battlefield as we uh, speak. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is urging nations to offer Ukraine more arms and more ammunition. The White House has rather issued a stark warning to a Republican senator who continues to hold up dozens of military promotions. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has been blocking the process for months over his opposition to the Pentagon's policy on abortion. Senator Tuberville says he'll continue to block the nominations unless the Defense Department reverses its policy that provides paid time off and travel expenses for service members seeking abortions. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Tuberville's efforts are a threat to national security. These are important nominations that, that the American people need to keep our country safe. And so they, and not only that, they risk our military readiness by depriving our armed forces uh, of leadership and hurt our military families. That's what he's doing by holding these DOD nominees. Tuberville has been using a procedural tactic that requires only one senator's objection to delay the approval process. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Miami's mayor, Francis Suarez, has filed paperwork to run for the Republican presidential nomination next year. Suarez is a former president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He's been elected twice as Miami's mayor, with about 80 percent of the vote. Suarez has irritated some Republicans. He says he didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2020. The prosecution's final witnesses took the stand yesterday in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial. Robert Bowers is on trial for killing 11 Jewish worshipers in 2018. From member station WESA, Oliver Morrison has more. Andrea Wedner described the moments when she and her 97-year-old mother, Rose Malinger, lay in fear on the chapel floor and called 911. Wedner asked that she not have to be in the courtroom when prosecutors played a recording of that call. Wedner could be heard during the call whispering to her mom to stay quiet several times. Then the jury could hear loud screams as Wedner was shot in the arm and her mother was shot and killed. After playing the recording, the prosecution rested its case, and the defense immediately declined to call any witnesses. Closing arguments will take place Thursday before the case is sent to the jury for deliberation. I'm Oliver Morrison in Pittsburgh. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Harvard Medical School says it's investigating after a morgue manager was charged with stealing human body parts and selling them. Prosecutors say Cedric Lodge let people go into the morgue to browse the remains and decide what to buy. WBUR's Allie Germanning has more. The Harvard medical dean said in a statement that they were appalled that something so disturbing could happen on their campus. The thefts allegedly took place over a four-year period. Lodge was fired last month. The school has convened a panel to evaluate its anatomical gift program and morgue policies. That outside group will recommend how to improve security. Harvard says it's working to figure out which donor remains may have been impacted, and they are reaching out to family members of those who donated their bodies to the school for research. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Governor Maura Healey is expected to announce a number of pardons today. Two sources familiar with her plans tell the Boston Globe that Healey will pardon seven people. It's not clear who. Former governors have waited until the end of their terms to announce pardons, and Healey's been in office for six months. Her administration didn't comment. Pardons would have to be approved by the governor's council. Federal transportation officials are telling major automakers not to comply with Massachusetts' new right-to-repair law. Voters overwhelmingly approved that law in 2020. It requires car manufacturers to give vehicle information to independent repair shops and consumers. But the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration says the rule poses significant safety concerns and conflicts with federal law. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is now considering a new budget for the city. The city council approved a $4.2 billion spending plan yesterday. It includes a $31 million cut to the police department budget. That's about 7 percent. And for that reason, city council president Ed Flynn said he was voting no. During these challenging times in our city, our public safety departments, those first responders, they play a critical role in our neighborhoods. The budget includes nearly $53 million in city council amendments. Mayor Wu can veto some, all or none of those amendments. Also yesterday, the council approved a nearly $1.5 billion budget for Boston Public Schools. One of the youngest lawmakers to ever lead the Massachusetts House has died. David Bartley passed away this week. He was elected House Speaker at 33, and he's known for creating the first in the nation special education. Law. Bartley was 88 years old. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. In sports, Red Sox beat the Colorado Rockies 6-3 to at Fenway last night. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Yankees tomorrow. And our weather forecast says it's going to be sunny today. Temperatures in the 70s. Tonight will be clear with lows around 60. Tomorrow, a chance of storms in the afternoon. Temperatures getting into the 80s tomorrow. And for the weekend, showers Saturday, clouds on Sunday, and temperatures both weekend days around 70 degrees. It is 62 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include stars with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Outlander premieres June 16th on Stars and the Stars app.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The GOP presidential primary just got a little bit bigger. That's because Miami Mayor Francis Suarez filed paperwork late Wednesday, making his intent to run for president officially official. He'll speak this evening in California at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation. Here's a preview of what uh, we're likely to hear from Suarez, who appeared on Fox News Sunday. We are in incredibly disruptive uh, moments in our history, and uh, we need to step up as a country and understand where the dynamism is going so that we can position ourselves. For a look at how Suarez fits into this race and more on the campaign, we're joined by NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanara. Hi, Layla. Okay, so Francis Suarez is probably a new name for a lot of people. So tell us about him. Well, Suarez is young, charismatic, uh, mayor of Miami. He's 45. He's been elected twice with about 80% of the vote. He's a former president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He's Cuban-American, lawyer by training, but seems to have been bred for politics. You know, he's a political scion. His father was also mayor of Miami uh, some decades ago. Mm. He might have some problems in this race, though. You know, no one has ever gone from being a mayor right to winning the White House or a major party nomination. And he's also rankled Republicans because he says he did not not vote for former President Trump in 2020 or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for governor in 2018. He's had some issues with both men for their hardline immigration policies and rhetoric, and he's called DeSantis's fight with Disney, for example, a personal vendetta. Interesting. Okay, he's been reelected twice. What's he tried to do as mayor? One of his focuses has been public transportation, as well as trying to make Miami something of a tech hub. He's a big Bitcoin proponent, even saying he takes his salary in Bitcoin. Um, He stirred a lot of interest from Silicon Valley because of how he talks about tech. But the Miami mayoral position is a relatively weak one. It's kind of part-time, and Suarez has outside jobs. That's landed him in some pretty hot water. We've been talking a lot about Trump indictments lately, but the Miami Herald reported just days ago that the FBI and SEC have opened investigations into Suarez and a developer in the city. The Herald reported that the FBI's investigation centers on $10,000 monthly payments made to Suarez from a subsidiary of the developer's main company. The paper reported that special agents from the FBI have begun questioning witnesses focusing on whether the payments constitute bribes in exchange for securing permits or other favors from the mayor. On top of blaming the media, though, for even reporting on this, uh, here's how Suarez defended himself in that same Fox News interview, which focused quite a bit on these allegations. From what I know, which is very little, um, it wasn't a controversial decision and no one's complained about it. This is something that the Miami Herald is complaining about. Okay, well, there's a lot there to learn more about this investigation as it goes forward. But Suarez getting in now makes him the 10th major Republican candidate running in the presidential primary. And we keep hearing about Trump's stronghold on the party base. So why are so many people jumping in? Yeah, it's interesting. And Trump does have a pretty firm grip on the Republican base. You know, but there are really three primaries going on the way I see it. You know, one for the 2024 nomination, one to frankly be Trump's vice presidential running mate if he does win the primary, and one for 2028. I know that we don't want to talk about that probably, but remember, even if Trump wins, he can only serve four more years. And if President Biden wins re-election, he's only got four more years, too. So 2028 is going to be wide open. It's going to be fascinating. And if you're a self-confident person, you might think, hey, this is my opportunity to raise my brand as a preview for four years from now. The long game for some. (laughs) NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks so much. Hey, you're welcome. Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News, but he's still sharing his opinions. Yeah, he's got a new show on Twitter named Tucker on Twitter. But what about voters? What are they learning from this spectacle? 
Well, mostly they're learning that they have no power at all because nobody cares about them. His latest video has more than 80 million views. Fox is warning Carlson, though, to knock it off because he's still under contract with him until 2025. NPR's David Folkenflik joins us to talk about the battle brewing between these two conservative media powerhouses. Good morning, David. Morning, Layla. So what are these videos that Carlson's posting on Twitter? Well, they're awfully similar to the monologues that used to kick off his primetime show on Fox News itself. On Tuesday, he did sort of the scattershot attack, but really he was focusing mostly on the arraignment of former President Donald Trump over possession of classified materials. Carlson presented it not just as a prosecution, but a persecution, saying President Joe Biden and the Washington establishment had it in for him because of his stance against the Iraq war during the Republican presidential primaries in 2016. I think it's worth pointing out Trump really didn't come out against the invasion of Iraq until it started to turn pretty unpopular. Okay, so like you said, it sounds a lot like a show on Fox and he's still under contract with Fox. So how does he get to do this? Well, according to Fox, he doesn't. The specter of litigation hangs over all of this. Fox had basically fired Carlson, which is to say it canceled his show after settling this huge defamation suit for nearly $800 million over bogus claims of election fraud in the 2020 race. Carlson's also been sued, along with Fox News, for a hostile work environment by a former senior producer who alleged his show was rife with bigotry and sexism and apparently has dozens of audio recordings to make her case. And Fox News itself has gone pretty quiet about those allegations at the moment. The real question is, does Fox want to go to war with a figure who's so popular among its audience? Fox says, look, he's still under contract until the beginning of 2025, which puts him after the 2024 race. And we're paying him, so he's got to shut up. Fox has had real consequences by firing him, however. It's lost about a third of its viewers in primetime. MSNBC, for the first time in almost two years, beat Fox in primetime viewers last week. And that's a real blow to Fox. Hmm. Okay, so that's Fox's perspective. But clearly Carlson doesn't see what he's doing is wrong since he's posting the videos. How does he justify it? Well, lawyers claim that Fox has sought to hurt his reputation by leaking damaging things publicly and have claimed that they've already violated his contract. They also say it's the First Amendment right to speak. Let's not forget Elon Musk, the controlling owner of Twitter, says Carlson's videos are a model for people on the right and left. It's not compensated directly by Twitter, and it's not exclusive to Twitter. In the meantime, it's fascinating to see Carlson not only take shots at the establishment and at others among conservatives, but at former U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan twice in his video last night. Ryan, of course, a corporate director of parent company Fox Corp. Okay, so where does this fight between Fox and Carlson go from here? Well, if you take literally what's playing out, it looks like it's headed to court. Neither side should want that. They've both been damaged by all these revelations in that earlier defamation suit I mentioned. But Carlson really wants a voice in this upcoming presidential cycle and to keep the influence he's built over the years. And Fox really wants to sideline him and to get their viewers back on side. The question is, who gives up first or who gives up enough to come to terms before this actually goes to court? And mm. NPR's David Folkenflik, thank you. You bet. The Southern Baptist Convention is reaffirming what church leaders decided more than two decades ago, that only men should serve as pastors. Earlier this year, the Protestant denomination kicked out one of its biggest congregations, Saddleback Church in California, along with Fern Creek Baptist Church in Kentucky because they had women pastors. And yesterday at a meeting in New Orleans, appeals from those churches were rejected. Daniel Darling teaches at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Daniel, why can't women be pastors? Well, this is a longstanding belief uh, among Southern Baptists, really throughout uh, the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Southern Baptists believe that 
um, men and women are equal and uh, women have full, you know, um, uh, participation in the life and ministry of churches. But there's a, a particular role of pastor that we believe the scripture has um, restricted to men. You'll notice that we not only affirmed the decision with Saddleback and Fern Creek, uh, but also released a resolution, Resolution 5, which really affirmed the role of women uh, in the life of the church. Many of our Southern Baptist leaders uh, and um, Southern Baptist heroes throughout our history, Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, and others are, are women. So I think it's this is a distinctive, one of the distinctives of Southern mm-hmm. Baptist conventions. You know, some Christians disagree right. with this uh, yeah. that uh, in other denominations, but this action really was just in keeping with the longstanding uh, position of Southern Baptists. And Daniel, out of curiosity, is there one particular biblical verse that uh, the SBC points to, to restrict women from being pastors? Well, I think uh, one verse would be First Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, uh, I do not uh, give women the authority to teach over men. Uh, Baptists take it from that passage, but also in the qualifications for pastors in First Timothy and in Titus, and really in the sort of patterns of, in Scripture of those who are preaching and proclaiming have, have really been restricted um, to men. So if a church has no men available or willing to be pastors, the SBC would rather lose a congregation than let a woman lead. Well, I think the SBC would rather uh, we raise up young men and uh, to but fill But in the those absence positions. of that, that's the question. In the absence of that. Well, the SBC has, has believed this uh, for all of its history. And so uh, this is, is kind of in accordance with what the Southern Baptists have, have always believed. And uh, that women do have participation in the life of the church, that women and men are equal, but they have different and distinct roles. Now, if the SBC enshrines this prohibition on women pastors in its constitution, uh, the church could exclude through disfellowshipping thousands of congregations. How wide is this rift going to get, Daniel? I don't think the rift is going to get very wide, and I don't think the practice is very widespread. Um, uh, and you'll notice this was not the only issue that the SBC addressed, uh, even when it comes to disfellowshipping. Uh, the SBC also disfellowshipped a church uh, that um, handled sexual abuse uh, wrong, that continued to hire uh, a pastor who was uh, accused of sexual abuse misconduct, and so uh, disfellowshipped from that church. And the SBC also addressed a number of other issues. Uh, there was a uh, resolution on immigration, uh, urging uh, immigration reform in Congress. Uh, it reaffirmed its commitment to robust sexual abuse reform, reauthorizing the task force to help churches really get this right, and also to create a database and a website that uh, lists uh, sexual uh, those who have committed sexual abuse. And so I think this is one of our distinctives, but it's not the only thing we're characterized by. We're characterized by missions, and uh, we have the third largest disaster relief operation and really, we've planted 10,000 churches uh, since 2010. So this was one of many issues that uh, our family of churches addressed. Daniel Darling is a director at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and author of the book Agents of Grace. Daniel, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your day with us. Coming up on Morning Edition, Germany plans to ban gas and oil boilers in all new buildings starting next year to reduce its carbon footprint. Some homeowners say they're worried about the cost. It's 20 minutes past 7. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. And Refuge Point, finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org slash WBUR. Nearly two years after the fall of the government in Afghanistan, people are still fleeing the Taliban and coming to the United States, only to find more uncertainty in this country's immigration system. This is uh, the confirmation of my residence. So this is not, we don't take this. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Our forecast calling for sunshine today. Highs in the upper 70s. Clear tonight. Lows in the 60s. It is 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. Earth, fire, water, and air are all characters in the new movie Elemental, and they don't always mix well. Fire! Fire! Ah, Fire! Hey, hey! Oh, sorry! You're so hot. (laughs) Excuse me? Elemental was directed by Pixar veteran Peter Sohn. The story was inspired by his childhood growing up in New York, the son of Korean immigrants. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this profile. I recently met Peter Sohn in Chinatown, one of his old haunts. I thought we'd be talking about the ins and outs of filmmaking, and we did, but we talked a lot about his mom. My mother's love for movies was this weird way that we could communicate, because she didn't speak English very well. Growing up here, I spoke English better than than I did Korean, and so much of growing up was this battle to try to understand each other. But when it came to the movies, there's this Venn diagram where we could connect. Sohn's love for movies led to a career. He's now one of Pixar's MVPs. He worked on WALL-E, The Incredibles, and Finding Nemo. He directed The Good Dinosaur. Oh, 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 where are you going? I need to get home. He's a genius story guy, a brilliant designer. He's an amazing animator. He can do everything. Pete Docter is Pixar's chief creative officer. Sohn was a storyboard artist on the 2009 movie Up, which Docter co-wrote and directed. He says Sohn designed a key scene in the movie. Grumpy Carl lives in an old house that developers want to tear down. To get away but keep his house, Carl finds a dazzling solution. Carl floats his house with balloons up. He pulls it free of the moorings of the uh, foundation and floats through the city. So long, boys! 
I'll send you a postcard from Paradise Falls. That's almost shot for shot what Pete boarded. Pete Sohn's colleagues have even recruited him to voice some of their characters. I'm not a great voice actor. Most of the characters all sound like this, essentially. And uh, so Squishy in Monsters University would be like, Hey, Mike, I'm undeclared, unattached, and unwelcome. And then I played Emil, Remy's brother in Ratatouille, and he would be like, Hey, Remy. Oh, I can't believe oh, it. Why? I thought I'd you never see you guys again. I figured you didn't survive the rapids. Sound clearly had a blast making those movies, but his new film, Elemental, is on another level. It's deeply personal, partly based on the story of his own parents. His father emigrated to New York from Korea in 1969 with $150. $75 of that would go to rent in it, I guess it would be like a prostitute apartment. Oh, because oh, as a kid, he would just say, hooker house, hooker house. And we're like, what is that? Like, we had no idea. And then the other $75 would go to renting a pretzel hot dog cart. I'm selling pretzels for like 25 cents and ices for like, you know, for nothing. Eventually, Son says his dad saved enough money to open a bodega-style grocery store in the Bronx. That's where he met my mom. After five weeks of the meeting, they would marry Nine months later, I would be born and, you know, uh, grew up in the shop. And my mother was the cashier. And uh, my father kept working this, like, you know, four in the morning till 11 o'clock at night job, you know, seven days a week. When times were good, Son's family would go to Chinatown. My parents used to take us here all the time when we were kids, especially to this restaurant. We're right in front of Hop Key, this Chinese restaurant where my parents came to celebrate any sort of event. You want to go down? Yeah. Down some stairs, Hop Key is a modest restaurant that's been here for almost 60 years. Sohn recognizes the waiter. My mom um, passed away, but her favorite dish here was this crab dish. Yeah, Yeah, number 15. Where is it? When we were coming here, I don't even remember it being all in English. But there was Korean, too, and so that's the other reason my parents would come here. Yeah, the Korean. This Cantonese style, it is incredible. And, you know, the funny thing about my mom is that she's so loud eating the crab here. Yeah, yeah. yeah like she would be like... <laughs> like it's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> that sonic attention to detail and a wild imagination have helped Peter Sohn a lot as a filmmaker. He got the idea for Elemental when he was in middle school science learning about the periodic table. All I saw were apartment buildings and these each blocks and the atomic number and the name to me was like a family or a person that lived there. And so I would come up with jokes of like, oh, copper lives next to helium, but don't trust helium because they're gassy, you know? And so they started becoming characters. And, uh, you know, I could only go so far with like boron or, or argon. And uh, I started boiling that down to the classical elements with like earth, fire, water, and air. And with poetic license. There was a beautiful metaphor for me of like, Oh, right. In this table of elements, there are all these disparate cultures mixing together. That metaphor became elemental, which is like a fantastical, kid-friendly Romeo and Juliet. The fire parents have emigrated to Element City, where they open a grocery store. Their daughter, Ember, meets a water character named Wade. He's weepy. (laughs) What the... Ember is a bit of a hothead. Dude, just get out of here! I gotta clean this mess before my dad sees what I did! 
Naturally, fire and water, not a good mix, unless through the magic of animation, they can make it work. In one scene, Ember shows off how she can turn the landscape different colors. It's the minerals. Check this out. <laughs> awesome! Wade responds by making a rainbow. Watch this! This idea of two people from two different cultures coming together, uh, fire and water, what would happen if they could get along? And uh, that was stemmed off of, I fell in love with someone that wasn't Korean. And uh, my, I grew up in a family where they were like, marry Korean. I mean, my grandmother's dying words were like, you know, and then, uh, which is, you know, like, marry Korean, and, and she passed away, and uh, there was a lot of pressure from that, but I fell in love with someone that wasn't, and uh, all the fun culture clash stuff from that and all sort of the dark stuff from that became um, ingredients to the film. Heartache, family, falling in love. Sound says Elemental is about finding connection. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up on Morning Edition, we tour a new view of Boston that opens today 52 stories above the city. To follow the news every day, you can just tap on the WBUR app. One tap to listen live anywhere, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store today. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust, Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants from sustainable gardens, grown from seeds without pesticides. NativePlantTrust.org. And Davis Mom. Immigration laws are not foreign to them. Learn more at DavisMom.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, is jumping into the race for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. Suarez has filed paperwork with the Federal Election Commission. He's expected to make a formal announcement later today. The current field of GOP contenders includes former President Donald Trump, who was arraigned on a 37-count federal indictment this week in Miami. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is also in the race. NPR's Domenico Montanaro says history is not on Suarez's side. No one has ever gone from being a mayor right to winning the White House or a major party nomination. And he's also rankled Republicans because he says he did not vote for Trump in 2020 or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for governor in 2018. Suarez is the former president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. A report from a committee of the British Parliament says then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson lied to lawmakers about parties he held during the coronavirus pandemic in violation of the U.K.'s lockdown restrictions. The report says Johnson's actions were a flagrant violation of the rules. Johnson quit Parliament late last week after he was told of the findings from the House of Commons Privileges Committee. Two-time Oscar winner Glenda Jackson has died. The British actor and lawmaker's agent says she died after a brief illness at the age of 87. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The T is falling short of its goals for being on time, and a report says it's actually getting worse. The report released by the MBTA focused on this past fall. It found that subway service was on time 86 percent of the time, and that's short of the T's goal of 90 percent. Buses were on time 69 percent of the time. The commuter rail hit 90 percent but all of those were down from the year before. Boston is putting millions of dollars toward maintenance work at City Hall. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the brutalist landmark is due for about $80 million in upgrades over the next five years. Part of the expense has to do with how City Hall was built. Many of the original hot water pipes date back to the 1960s and are completely encased in concrete. Here's Property Management Commissioner Eamon Shelton. I think historically maintenance has been underfunded, and so I think what we're trying to do is highlight the importance of that. Mayor Michelle Wu says she's committed to funding City Hall for the long term. From the beginning, the idea is that this was supposed to be the people's building. Maybe we do it a little differently in Boston, but we need to make sure we preserve that history. The city is also planning a maintenance audit for all its roughly 350 public properties. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Eleven Massachusetts firefighters leave for Canada today to help fight wildfires there. The group will head to an area northwest of Quebec City. The province of Quebec has dealt with more than 100 fires this month alone. Those fires caused smoky, hazy skies across the northeast. Governor Healy's office says the group of firefighters will stay in Canada for the next two weeks. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. In sports, Red Sox rallied last night with a five-run seventh inning. They beat the Colorado Rockies 6-3 to at Fenway and avoided getting swept in that three-game series. The Sox are off today. They begin a three-game series with the Yankees tomorrow. Our weather forecast, mostly sunny today. Temperatures in the upper 70s. Tonight, clear. Lows in the 60s. Tomorrow, increasing clouds, maybe storms in the afternoon. Highs will be in the low 80s tomorrow. And for the weekend, shower. Hours on Saturday, clouds on Sunday, temperatures both weekend days around 70. It's 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Medical students in states with abortion bans are having trouble getting all the training they need. Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat from Wisconsin, is co-sponsoring new legislation to address the issue. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Sammy Strobel started medical school last summer. She's an aspiring OBGYN at the University of Wisconsin, which has gotten complicated. The Dobbs decision came out, I mean, within weeks of me starting medical school. And I sat there before I began and was like, how is this going to change the education that I'm going to get? And how is this going to change 
my experience, wanting to provide this care to patients in the future. Strobel, who co-leads her school's chapter of the national advocacy group Medical Students for Choice, wants to learn to provide abortion care. But the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision made abortion rights a state-by-state issue, and Wisconsin... So Wisconsin reverted to the 1849 law where abortion is essentially completely illegal, except in cases where they say that the woman's life is in imminent danger. Which really limits the ability of patients to access abortion. Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat from Wisconsin, says it also means that in states like hers with restrictive laws, medical schools can't teach abortion care. The students and their supervising clinicians have to travel out of state to get that component of their training. Meanwhile, neighboring states, and this is happening across the United States, are accepting an influx of students. She's co-sponsoring a bill with Senator Patty Murray, a Democrat from Washington, called the Reproductive Health Care Training Act. It establishes a grant program to provide $25 million each year for the next five years to fund medical students who leave their states to learn abortion care and programs that train them. They're introducing it in the Senate today. Baldwin says that since the Dobbs decision, there's been a 10% drop in OBGYN medical residents who are applying to practice in her state. It is exacerbating what was already a shortage of providers in the state providing maternity care and cancer screenings and other routine care. Dr. Christina Francis, head of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, says medical training in pregnancy care does need to be better. But from her perspective, it should focus on routine care for preeclampsia, diabetes, and C-sections. We need to be investing money into taking better care of women during their pregnancies and after, and not investing money in ending the life of one of our patients and harming our other patient in the process. Studies do show that most patients who have had abortions don't regret getting one. And Strobel, the medical student in Wisconsin, worries about patients who live in abortion-restricted states. It is scary to think that, you know, if a lot of OBGYNs and -and up-and-coming medical students want this training and they can't get it in places like Wisconsin or Idaho or Alabama or Texas, what's going to happen to the people who need that care in those states? Given the legal landscape, Strobel's not sure how or where she'll practice in the future. For now, she just wants to finish her medical education with the state school that she's enrolled in. Ping Huang, NPR News. Okay, imagine it's winter and your home's heating system breaks down. I mean, you typically have it fixed, right? But if you live in Germany, new rules being debated in Parliament this week could force you to replace your old boiler with a new expensive heat pump. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, German homeowners are scared of the crippling cost of meeting their country's climate targets. The green future of German heating is a white box the size of your refrigerator. It also happens to use the same technology as your refrigerator, but in reverse. It takes the temperature from the food inside the fridge and then kind of blows it out. And a heat pump is just the other way around. Wolfgang Gründinger heads the startup NPAL, which sells heat pumps. He stands in front of two of them propped up near a foosball table inside the company's buzzing Berlin office. The cost of electricity needed to power a heat pump is a third cheaper than natural gas. The savings are even better for those who run heat pumps from solar panels. People realize that gas is super expensive, um, that we are dependent on foreign countries when it comes to gas, and they can just make their electricity on their own rooftop and have their heat pump at home. 
Germany's Green Party has overseen a bill that aims to do away with the country's gas and oil heating infrastructure for good. An early version of the bill leaked to German media revealed the plan would be to, starting next year, require all new buildings in Germany to install heating systems that use at least 65% renewable energy. The heat pump is currently one of the only ways to meet this goal. Early bill language also mandated that any building in Germany, including family homes whose heating systems had broken down, would also be required to meet this goal. It was this part of the proposed bill that sent German homeowners into a frenzy. This law will um, instantly reduce the value of the building stock in Germany in a very dramatic way. Kai Vonica is the president of Haus und Grund, an association that represents nearly a million private homeowners and landlords in Germany. The estimation for a standard one-family house, which uh, needs to be redone and have a heat pump installed, is around 100 and 150,000 euro per one-family home. And therefore, the calculated outcome for the whole German building stock is, uh, on a conservative level, 1 trillion euro. That is equal to more than a quarter of Germany's GDP last year. Fonica says this bill, should it become law, would bankrupt middle-class homeowners and tank the country's economy. But this week, as Germany's parliament prepared to debate the bill, German media reported that new language in it may water it down, only requiring new buildings to conform to the new climate rules and giving homeowners more time to comply. That'll be a relief to German homeowners, but André Bolling, an energy expert at Greenpeace, says the climate cannot wait. Bolling says the revised bill will result in Germany failing to hit its 2030 climate protection targets and that it's up to Parliament to ensure it's tightened up with stricter measures. Outside of Berlin's Parliament building, Tanya Baer, a 44-year-old chemistry teacher visiting from the city of Mainz, says she's watching all of this closely. Also, prinzipiell finde ich das eine gute Idee. Bayer says she's all for climate protection, but she says the Green Party wants to do this too quickly. Bayer and her husband have four children and they're looking to buy a new house. She says she can only afford an older home with a gas or oil boiler, and she says there's no way she can afford replacing that with a new heat pump, even with subsidies the Green Party's promising. Bayer says she's always voted for the Greens, but she doesn't plan on doing that in the next election. Germany's parliament plans to debate the new boiler ban bill in the coming days. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, do fish bay at the moon? Well, the answer to this question may not only surprise you, but actually point the way to protect the ocean's damaged ecosystems. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on the show, higher interest rates have made borrowing more expensive, but there's some good news for people with money in savings accounts. Our weather forecast, mostly sunny today. Temperatures in the upper 70s. It'll be clear tonight with lows in the 60s. Increasing clouds tomorrow, a chance of storms in the afternoon. Temperatures in the 80s. And for the weekend, shower Saturday, clouds on Sunday, and temperatures both weekend days around 70 degrees. It's 62 degrees in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. In business news, workers at about a dozen Starbucks locations in central Massachusetts say they've been asked to pull back on in-store decorations for Pride Month. Their union says they were told they could put up decorations only for one day and only if there was another community celebration going on. Workers at some other stores in the state report similar restrictions, but Starbucks tells the Boston Globe it has not made any changes to its policies and it continues to support the LGBT. LGBTQ community. The Taste of Somerville is back at Assembly Road tonight for the first time since the start of the pandemic. The event celebrates the city's food scene and more than 50 restaurants will participate. Stephen Mackey leads the Somerville Chamber of Commerce. It's a colorful event. We have a DJ uh, with music and a tremendous crowd of people from all over. You know, it really draws a diverse crowd and uh, everybody has a lot of fun. Mackey says proceeds from the festival will go to a local education nonprofit. The time is 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. You'll soon be able to see Boston from new heights. A 360-degree observatory called View Boston opens today at the top of the Prudential Center. It replaces the top of the hub in the Skywalk, which closed three years ago. WBUR's Rupa Shinoy stopped by for an early tour from the View's owners, BXP. I'm Rebecca Stoddard, Vice President of Marketing for BXP. This is our touchless security screening area where all guests will pass through as they proceed to the elevator area where we will lift off to floor 52, which is the first floor of the View Boston experience. Here you'll see a 360 degree view of the city. A lot of things are standing out to me, of course, Beacon Hill, uh, but also the Harbor Islands. Like, I've yes. never seen them, I've never thought of them and seen them so included yes. in and a view of the city. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're eye level with the clouds, or maybe I could reach up and touch the clouds <laughs> if I were taller. Uh, these are our virtual explorers. So, 
through the Virtual Explorer, visitors are able to learn more about the 26 neighborhoods in Boston that make it so unique. And as you look out the windows and you rotate the screen, you're able to see the neighborhoods that you're looking out on. You're able to click in on that neighborhood, learn more about it, and some of the most iconic landmarks from that particular area of the city. So let's try. And as you move and change your view out the windows, you're seeing the neighborhoods are updating. Oh, that's cool. So here we have Alston. Now we're looking at Cambridge. Jamaica Plain. Arnold Arboretum. America's oldest arboretum, a botanical collection of tree species. Encounter 15,000 individual plants across Harvard University's 281-acre preserve. We are now on floor 51. And this is where you're gonna find 10,000 square foot outdoor viewing deck. It's pretty incredible. We can actually go out there right now. Windy, but beautiful. This is the area where you start to get a little bit closer to the city. You hear the city, you feel the city, you can feel the weather. It's all glass panels here, so you can see right through. So. It kind of feels like you're walking on the edge and the city is right there. So the last of our experiential exhibits is the finale. And this is where visitors are going to come. They're going to scan their ticket and finalize their itinerary. It is kind of expensive, maybe for a family of four or something like that. And so it might be seen as kind of an elite experience. Can you speak to that? We feel that we've been thoughtful in all of the exhibits and in the content for families and, you know, individuals with disabilities. So we are hopeful that this pricing structure will feel open and available to all. That is our intention. Thank you so much for showing us around. We really appreciate it. You are so welcome and we hope to tour you again very soon. Thanks for being with us on WBUR this morning. Coming up on Morning Edition, the UK's system of checks and balances in government and where it stands after former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It's 11 minutes before 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum with Climate Action, Inspiring Change, featuring young artists from New England. Closes June 25th. For tickets, visit PEM.org and AAFCPAs, Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for Nonprofits, Commercial Companies, and Individuals, AAFCPA.com. Wonia Tebow won a season of Alone, the show where people rely on their skills, stamina, and mental strength to survive in the wilderness. It wasn't easy. My hands were seized up from tendonitis, from building with rock and digging in the dirt and harvesting mussels. So I could barely use my hands. I'd been hypothermic for days. And yet Tebow thrived in the wild, and she says you can too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Here's a look at some of the top stories that WBUR is following for you this morning. The Federal Reserve is holding interest rates uh, steady for now, but does hint that more increases are coming this year. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is joining the crowded race for the Republican presidential nomination. And in Cambridge, Harvard officials are investigating allegations that its former morgue manager stole and sold human body parts. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Rooted, an offbeat comedy where two sisters and a treehouse accidentally start a cult. Through June 25th, lyricstage.com. Forecast says mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 70s, 62 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. You may think of dollars as how you pay for your morning coffee, but the dollar is actually the world's money. It's what's known as the global reserve currency, a fancy title that has brought a lot of major perks to the U.S. economy. But now a lot of people are saying the dollar is at risk of getting knocked off the top spot. Here's NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith. Earlier this year, something happened that got the economists of the world very worked up. China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, even Brazil, they started making trades. Okay, that's not the dramatic part. The dramatic part was how they paid for those deals. They paid using Chinese yuan, Russian rubles, and this sent a very clear message, says economist and former White House advisor Michael Boskin. The U.S. is the global reserve currency, the dollar. The global reserve currency, meaning when international deals happen, they usually happen in U.S. dollars. So if you're a clothing designer in Chile and you order cotton from Egypt for some shirts you want to make, you will pay for that cotton in U.S. dollars, not Chilean pesos, not Egyptian pounds. To be clear, the U.S. isn't involved in the deal at all. But the U.S. dollar is. It's the default for most global trade. This is a big boost to the U.S. in all kinds of ways. The dollar literally is at the center of most of the business on Earth. We have an important advantage which may whittle away slowly if we're not careful. There are a couple reasons why the dollar's status is suddenly being talked about as at risk. First, the debt ceiling. Being the currency everybody counts on to do business means people have to believe that your currency is reliable. The recent debt ceiling fight made the U.S. and the dollar look potentially unstable, risky. But that was not at the heart of the recent spate of non-dollar trades, says Ben Steele, an economist with the Council on Foreign Relations. He says that was about something else. A U.S. government's increasing use of the dollar as a tool for financial sanctions. Financial sanctions. The dollar is so powerful that if you cannot use it, you are essentially iced out of being able to do most business anywhere in the world. The U.S. has used this as a nonviolent way to hurt countries, North Korea, Iran, and most recently, Russia. After the invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. said, no dollar for you. Steele says the economic impact of that has been massive, and other countries noticed. It is like overprescribing an effective antibiotic. It encourages the development of new strains of bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotic. 
If you are a country that has a complicated relationship with the U.S., watching the effects of U.S. financial sanctions on Russia is scary. It's been enough to push China, Saudi Arabia, and others to make deals that get around using the dollar. And that can lead to a massive fragmentation in the global economy, a much less efficient and productive global economy. Right now, the dollar has a lot of momentum and is not at any immediate risk of losing its top spot, says economist Michael Boskin. But he says momentum can change fast. Other countries in previous times have been the reserve currency and they've figured that away. Eighty years ago, the British pound sterling was the international currency. But after World War II, the U.K.'s economy was in shambles, and the U.S. was well-positioned to muscle the dollar in as the official currency of international business. And now, China and others have started to see a possible opening to grab that top dollar spot. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. We reached Caden Coleman just before nap time. Okay. okay. Go get a popsicle. Go ahead and take it. You have your iPad, you have your TV, you have all your lovely toys, all your books. Here you go. Thanks. You're welcome. Coleman is one of the dads we're hearing from this week in honor of Father's Day. He has two daughters. Journey is going on three. But she is basically going on 30. And Azalea is nine. The biggest thing for me with my kids was always to make sure that they were built for tough because of the world that we live in. Coleman is transgender and he educates people on social media about his experience, especially with pregnancy. Especially for someone like me who's also Black, also low income, things of that nature. Especially 10 years ago, people weren't interested in learning about transmasculine people navigating pregnancy. So I had to do a lot of advocating for myself and I experienced a lot of pushback and discrimination within the medical system based off of preconceived ideas of what a pregnant person is supposed to look like. Fast forward six years, with my second child, I thought that it would be different, and it really wasn't. I still had to deal with people telling me that I didn't belong in certain spaces. I had to convince a lot of people that I was pregnant and that I wasn't just some strange man trying to infiltrate the OBGYN's office. I got offered abortions an astronomical amount of times. One of the biggest things that people get wrong is that we hate our bodies. And thusly, anything feminine remotely is something that we will reject. And that's um, included but not limited to pregnancy. Those of us who identify more on the masculine spectrum, just because we identify as such does not take away our desire to have kids. And if we have the body parts to do so, why not? And the other thing is that a lot of people think that because we gave birth that we suddenly become mothers. And so people are always shocked when they hear my child calling me daddy, my children calling me daddy, and they're worried that our kids are going to be confused in some way, shape, or form. And that's just simply not true. Being a trans dad means I was assigned female at birth, and I was essentially raised to adhere to societal standards of what a girl is supposed to be, how a girl is supposed to act. I think that because of that upbringing 
for myself, I got to get the insight into how women are perceived by society. I also just have certain experiences. Like I know how to do hair. I know, you know, I'll know how to navigate when the menstrual cycles start and the body start changing. I know how to prepare them for what society is going to be expecting of them and teach them that they have autonomy over themselves. I'm just here to provide a safe space for them to grow and flourish into amazing adults who know what healthy, genuine love feels like and acceptance so that they know to be able to project that out into the world and hopefully be some sort of shining light to others. I feel like as a dad, my job is to be an example of that for them. That was Caden Coleman. He's a transgender dad who gave birth to his two daughters, Journey and Azalea. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Tens of thousands of people have been evacuated from coastal areas of India and Pakistan because of a dangerous cyclone. It's Thursday, June 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Southern Baptists vote to further restrict women from becoming pastors. We must stand our ground and keep the door shut to feminism and liberalism. Also this hour, Boston's plans to spend tens of millions of dollars upgrading City Hall. We have one of the most impressive, robust, complex, challenging city halls, and I am very glad to see it get a new life. Plus, why high interest rates aren't all bad news, especially for savings accounts, and the high unemployment rate for young people in China. Forecast says mostly sunny today, clouds, showers this weekend. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Later today, the White House is expected to announce that concert and ticketing company Live Nation has agreed to do away with hidden fees on ticket sales. NPR's Tamara Keith reports. Live Nation and its subsidiary Ticketmaster have earned the ire of music fans for years for tacking on hefty fees at the end of the purchasing process. The outcry was deafening after they botched ticket sales for the Taylor Swift Eras Tour and charged infuriating fees on top of it all. Now the White House says Live Nation will announce a commitment to offer all-in, upfront pricing to 30 million customers buying tickets at events at its venues. No more unpleasant surprises at checkout. President Biden will host company executives at the White House this afternoon from Airbnb, Live Nation, and several other smaller ticket sellers and venues committed to ditching the junk fees. Upfront pricing enables comparison shopping. 
Tamara Keith, NPR News. There were severe thunderstorms yesterday in the Northeast. Police in a New Jersey town say they saved the life of a man who was struck by lightning south of New York City. The man had been working outdoors. New Jersey resident Mahani Bedia said she saw the man on a soccer field just before the lightning strike. I was like, what is he doing out there? It's pouring out there. And then right when I got into my kitchen, that's where when I heard the boom. More storms triggered tornadoes in the south yesterday. Damage is reported in Alabama and Georgia. A British parliamentary committee that has been investigating former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has issued its report. Lawmakers conclude Johnson broke his own government's pandemic lockdown rules and repeatedly lied about it to Parliament. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. The report says Johnson deliberately misled Parliament about boozy parties he hosted while the country was under COVID lockdown. It calls his denials so disingenuous and notes the, quote, frequency with which he closed his mind to the truth. If Johnson were still in Parliament, investigators say he should be suspended for 90 days. But he resigned last week, beating them to it. They're recommending he be denied a parliamentary pass that's normally granted to former lawmakers. Parliament will debate that next Next week. In language echoing that of his friend Donald Trump, Johnson calls the investigation against him a witch hunt and a political assassination. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Officials in South Korea and Japan say that North Korea has launched what appears to be two ballistic missiles. These were fired from north of the capital Pyongyang and flew eastward into the sea. Japanese news reports say that at least one projectile fell into the waters of Japan's exclusive economic zone. The launches come as South Korea and the U.S. conducted military exercises today that simulated a North Korean attack. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. State senators will take up their version of a $590 million tax relief plan today. It comes about two months after the House approved its version, which is worth twice as much. WBUR Steve Brown has details. Unlike the House proposal, the Senate plan does not include a reduction in short-term capital gains taxes. It also leaves out other reforms seen as beneficial to businesses. Senate President Karen Spilka says her branch's plan is focused on individuals and working families. There are some things for folks, whether it be the EITC, the rental insistence, the senior circuit breaker, child-dependent care. That's where the bulk of the relief was desired. The estate tax was a big thing that will help people of many different incomes. Ultimately, the final version of the bill will be worked out in a House-Senate conference committee sometime in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. There's an update on opioid settlement funds coming to Massachusetts. As WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports, the state now expects to receive more than $1 billion over the next 18 years. The state has already received nearly $87 million from manufacturers and distributors who were sued for their alleged role in the opioid overdose crisis. The money is funding housing, treatment, and widespread distribution of Narcan. But Health and Human Services Secretary Kate Walsh says actions to date aren't doing enough. Our state has prioritized this, and yet we continue to lose people to overdose deaths. About six residents will die today after an overdose. That's the current average daily opioid death toll in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Martha Biebinger. The leader of a neo-Nazi group has been found not guilty of fighting in public after protesting a drag queen story hour in Jamaica Plain last year. Christopher Hood was protesting as part of the group NSC 131 when he was involved in a fight with a counter-protester. A judge ruled yesterday there wasn't enough evidence in the case for a jury to make a decision. The Suffolk DA's office tells the Boston Globe it will continue to pursue hate crime prosecution despite the decision. The Steamship Authority plans to scale back ferry service to the islands this summer. The agency says the cuts are due to staffing shortages and certifications from the Coast Guard for new employees are delayed. The Steamship Authority says it hopes that delays during peak summer travel times will be minimal. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. In sports, Red Sox topped the Colorado Rockies 6-3 to at Fenway last night. Red Sox are off today. They'll host the New York Yankees tomorrow. And our forecast, mostly sunny today with highs in the upper 70s. Tonight should be clear with lows around 60. And tomorrow, looks like rain in the afternoon, maybe a few thunderstorms in spots. Temperature is getting into the low 80s tomorrow. It is 62 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. For many people, it's welcome news that the Federal Reserve is hitting the pause button on rate hikes, at least for now. Now, that may mean some relief for people with a mortgage, auto loan, or credit card balance, but what does it mean for your savings account? Here to help us sort this out is Chelsea Ransom Cooper. She's a managing partner and certified financial planner with Zenith Wealth Partners. Chelsea, mortgage rates still relatively high right now, average rate about 7%, according to bank rate. Uh, what impact will the Fed's decision have on mortgage rates uh, going forward? So when we look at mortgage rates specifically, what we're seeing is they are fixed pretty close to where treasuries are, but there is still volatility depending on the loan volume that banks are experiencing right now. Due to the Fed's pause in rate hikes, even though they are talking about potentially raising it two more times before the end of the year, we are really seeing this cause a change in credit cards and variable rate loans. So that's personal loans. And then that also includes those home equity lines of credit that quite a few people did open over the past few years. So it's important to understand what are all the types of loans that you have as part of your financial picture, and then how are those impacted as well? So should people go out to open houses this weekend and put their real names down? It's <laughs> like, like they're serious to buy a house? <laughs> You know, it really always comes back to your financial goals and where you are. If you were always planning to purchase a home, it still makes sense for your financial future. You can afford the down payment and you're seeing a home that really makes sense for you and your family. Of course, you should always still continue. Personal finance is personal and making a home decision depends on more than just where interest rates are. It really depends on how much you can afford to cover on that monthly payment, but also on that down payment as well. So with the interest rate pause, it can be an attractive time where people 
people are saying, okay, this is a little bit of a relief, but understanding we're not out of the woods yet since we are expecting to see potentially two more hikes before the end of this year. What about the money that banks pay their customers, things like uh, savings rates uh, in, for savings accounts? Will we see uh, continue to see increases there? Ah, you're asking the great question. So when we think about savings rate, it also depends on where you're banking. So if we think about those big brick and mortar banks, they typically have very, very low savings rates. And the reason for this is because of the overhead costs that they have to cover. Think about it. You see those big brick and mortar banks on every single corner, and that comes with a cost where those savings rates are not increasing over time. Where if you look at online banks that don't have that overhead cost, they can continue to increase their savings rates over time, where they're consistently over 4% right now. Right now, we're seeing that they're sticking to where they are, but they're a very attractive place to hold your savings. If you're looking for something that can yield a little bit more than that 0.01% at that brick and mortar, but also this is your emergency savings. You want to keep it safe. You want to have access and liquidity to it. So that's where those online banks that are still getting over 4% can be incredibly attractive. So still a good time to shop those uh, those savings accounts to smaller banks. Absolutely. And then also understanding when you will potentially need that money. So having that high yield savings is great, but also it can still be attractive to look at shorter duration CDs or treasury bills as well. If you know that you have excess cash flow than what you would need for your traditional three to six months emergency savings. I was just about to ask about that. Yeah, because uh, how do you know, like how to plan for that? I, I guess you don't if it's an emergency, right? You don't really know how much your emergency will be, but we say a good rule of thumb is, you know, keeping three to six months and especially with the volatility in the market and the layoffs, it's really best to hold closer to six months. And then once you have that, any excess cash that you had that you feel like you may need in, let's say, two to five years, you're not comfortable putting it in the market, look to some of these shorter duration options where you can lock it in and just get a little bit more yield than you would by investing or leaving that money in a brick and mortar bank. So I guess in short, it's kind of a good time right now if you have money that you don't need to spend on something. If you got money that you can invest, it's a good time to have it. It's an excellent time to have that. The challenge, though, is, is since a lot of people are leaning on credit cards right now, they mm. don't necessarily have a lot of cash flow. But if you are one of those individuals that do, then it is a great opportunity, a great time to use that high yield savings. Chelsea Ransom Cooper is a managing partner and certified financial planner with Zenith Wealth Partners. Chelsea, thanks. Thank you. Pakistan and India are preparing for a cyclone that's expected to make landfall today. The cyclone has been dubbed Biparjoy, the word for disaster in Bengali, and that's exactly what officials are preparing for. Authorities are still evacuating tens of thousands of people from coastal areas, sending them to schools and government buildings that have been converted into shelters. They're removing billboards that could turn into deadly projectiles. On the line with us to tell us more is NPR's Dia Hadid. Hi, Dia. Hi, Layla. So, Dia, where are you right now? Are you in a safe place? Yeah, I'm in the Pakistani city of Hyderabad. It's about two hours inland. And even here, though, we can see the first impacts of the cyclone. We were on the road when the winds picked up and large palm trees were swaying hard. A cloud picked up dust. It enveloped the road and nearby bazaars. And squinting through, we could see shepherds barreling down the sides of the roads with their flocks of goats, getting them to safety. And the trash piled by roadsides was whipping up, setting 
having plastic bags and bottles careering. And this is all two hours from the coast. Wow. So if you're seeing that type of weather where you are, what's the situation in coastal areas? Well, NASA describes this as a severe cyclonic storm with a sustained wind speed of more than 80 miles an hour. And it's likely to land around the India-Pakistan border. And on both sides, authorities are evacuating tens of thousands of people and livestock. But the big fear is the impact it might have on the Pakistani port city of Karachi, which has a population around 20 million people. It's low-lying. A lot of the drains are blocked. In the past, heavy rains have caused severe floods, just sending main roads underwater and inundating the ground floors of homes. And there's tangles of power lines everywhere. So in previous floods, a lot of victims died by electrocution. And there's also open sewers. And as they spill over, diseases like diarrhea and typhoid are likely to spread. So the Minister of Climate Change, Sheree Rahman, she urged residents to trust the government to secure pets and livestock and even make sure solar panels were screwed onto rooftops properly. But she said she understood people's fears. We sympathize or And basically, she said, it's natural to panic, but be prepared. Dia, I suppose last year's devastating floods in Pakistan in particular are framing how people respond this time, right? Yeah, those summer floods last year left a third of Pakistan underwater at its peak. It killed more than 1,500 people, and it decimated the wheat and cotton crops that this country relies on. Even a year on, thousands of people are still homeless. And so this is a country that's quite vulnerable to these events, which are being made more extreme by climate change. You mentioned climate change. Is there a sense of the role it's played in how severe this cyclone is going to be? Yeah, it appears so. We've been speaking to folks here who say these sorts of cyclones were actually rare until about a decade ago. And NASA notes unusually warm waters help fuel the cyclone's intensification. And warm sea surface temperatures have contributed to the cyclone's long lifespan. And for many Pakistanis, these events feel relentless. The country's experiencing extreme floods, droughts, and now cyclones, and its poorest people are struggling to cope and recover from these incidents. Environmental activists say Pakistan is a classic example of how the people who've contributed least to global warming are facing some of the harshest impacts of it. Hmm. NPR's Dia Hadid, thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you, Leila. Amid a rating slump, the biggest legacy awards show in music is going even bigger by adding new categories. And here's Nada Ulabi reports. The Grammys have been experimenting with adding categories and changing the rules. Last year, it added five, including video game soundtracks and spoken word poetry albums. This year's new categories are Best Pop Dance Recording, Best Alternative Jazz Album, and Best African Music Performance. Music critic Walton Miyumba is also a professor at Indiana University. He says the Grammys are obviously trying to stay relevant and trading on the popularity of such stars as the Nigerian-born Burna Boy, who could headline a U.S. stadium, and the singer Thames, who has been ruling airplay charts. But Miyumba has a question about the Grammys' new categories. So what are you going to do with Angelique Kidjo? Kijo is a Beninese French singer, a New Yorker, on the Grammy Board of Trustees, who's won multiple Grammys for music that defies categorization. 
because it's not exactly jazz or dance or world music. It may in fact be all of that stuff. I'm also thinking about an artist like Pierre Quenders. Pierre Quenders, who comes to Montreal, I believe, from Congo, Kinshasa. He can sing in English, in Lingala, in French. Is Quenders world music? Is he African music? Is he North American music? Does it matter? I'm sure he would love a Grammy in whatever category. Many new Grammy categories seem to be about making up for overlooking certain kinds of music and musicians in the past, Miyumba says. It's like if they keep making new categories at some point, they can catch everyone. But I'm not sure that that's going to work or not. There's something that feels a little algorithmic, he says, about creating specific Grammy categories for musicians who explode them. And you cannot help but notice there are categories now for Latin and African music, but everything else is just world. Mayuma says, after all, when you listen to music, you do not listen to a type of music. You just listen to something you love. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Southern Baptists vote to amend their constitution to further restrict women from becoming pastors. It's 20 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com and members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. Nearly two years after the fall of the government in Afghanistan, people are still fleeing the Taliban and coming to the United States, only to find more uncertainty in this country's immigration system. This is uh, the confirmation of my residence. So this is not, we don't take this. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, mostly sunny today. Temperatures in the upper 70s. Tonight should be clear with lows around 60. Tomorrow, increasing clouds, a chance of storms in the afternoon. Temperatures getting into the low 80s. And for the weekend, showers Saturday, clouds on Sunday. Temperatures both weekend days around 70 degrees. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from STARS with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Outlander premieres June 16th on STARS and the STARS app. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Martinez. By some measures, democracy has been in decline around the globe for more than a decade. Today, we offer a glimmer of hope from across the pond, where former Prime Minister Boris Johnson tried to chip away at Britain's checks and balances during his time in office. The system fought back. Frank Langfitt, NPR's global democracy correspondent, reports from London. As crowds gathered for King Charles's coronation last month, protesters began to unload a van filled with hundreds of signs that read, Not My King. Before they could hand out a single sign, police arrested them. Many Britons cherished their right to protest, and some politicians condemned the arrests. Among those detained was Graham Smith, leader of the anti-monarchy group Republic. He spoke to Piers Morgan. This was a direct attack on democracy because democracy requires the freedom to dissent. Police were using a controversial new law that allows them to detain people based on the mere suspicion that they'll lock themselves together or to things to cause disruption. Here's Smith speaking to Britain's Times Radio. If they wanted to advertise how awful and draconian this legislation was, they couldn't have picked a better target than us. We have a very good, strong track record of being a peaceful, law-abiding campaign. Shami Chakrabarty serves in the House of Lords with the opposition Labour Party. She sees the new law as a sort of thought crime. You can imagine how dangerous it is in a democracy for the police to have blanket powers to stop and search people without even a reasonable suspicion that that person is going with criminal intent. Police couldn't prove their case and Smith was released without charge. But the government defended the law, which was introduced under Boris Johnson. During his three years as prime minister, Johnson targeted various checks on his power, tried to shut down parliament, sell off a public TV network, and weaken the country's electoral watchdog. William Wallace is a lawmaker with the Liberal Democrats, another opposition party. He was behaving as if he was world king, as he used to describe himself, and that the conventional constraints of the British constitution didn't apply. Soon after taking office in 2019, Johnson tried to close down the legislature, which would have prevented lawmakers from scrutinizing his Brexit bill. Britain's Supreme Court overruled Johnson, called the move unlawful. The prime minister responded with populist rhetoric and cast the dispute as an us-versus-them conflict. We will not betray the people who sent us here. what they want to do. We will not abandon the priorities that matter to the public. And we will continue to challenge those opposition parties to uphold democracy. In his telling, Johnson represented the will of the people to push through Brexit against judges, opposition politicians, and lawyers, a sort of liberal British deep state. Sam Fowles is an attorney who helped argue for Parliament's reinstatement before the Supreme Court. Fowles recalls stepping into a cab after the ruling and hearing news of the verdict on the radio. And we were kind of nudging each other and very smug and very happy. And the cabbie turned around to us and looked me dead in the eye and said, the British people will never forgive you for what you've just done. And that brought home to me that there is such a disconnect in this this country between what is actually required for democracy and what is actually going on. Britain's democratic system is particularly vulnerable to attack by those who simply ignore the norms. We don't have a constitution in the UK. We don't have formal written rules about a lot of these things. Tim Durant works at the Institute for Government, a London think tank. There is this phrase that the UK system relies on good chaps. It relies on people who are willing to behave. 
And if someone is willing to misbehave, then there is very little that the system can do to curtail that. Johnson continued to attack checks on political power. Last year, he called for the government to sell off Channel 4, an aggressive, editorially independent broadcaster. The government argued Channel 4 could better compete with the help of private finance. But many saw the move as pure revenge. During the 2019 election campaign, Channel 4 embarrassed Johnson during a debate on climate change. Jane Bonham Carter of the House of Lords explains. It was a famous incident when Boris Johnson did not turn up to a Channel 4 program, and he was replaced with a block of ice. It was an attempt at showing that he didn't understand about uh, global warming. And there is a theory that Channel 4 was never forgiven for doing this. Bottom Carter says Johnson's government wanted to cripple the broadcaster. They saw it as a channel that was intrinsically opposed to them. The House of Lords had major problems with the plan, which eventually died. While in office, Johnson did succeed in undermining some forms of public accountability. For instance, the Electoral Commission was stripped of its power to file criminal cases over election law violations. Many also saw this as political payback. In the past, the Electoral Commission had hit the Conservative Party and Johnson's pro-Brexit referendum campaign with huge fines for violating campaign finance laws. But overall, the British system has proven resilient. Tony Travers is a professor of government at the London School of Economics. In the end, in a mature democracy, these institutions think, well, unless we stand up for ourselves, it doesn't really matter. There's no point in existing, so we might as well do it anyway. Johnson ultimately failed due to self-inflicted wounds. Last summer, lawmakers in his own conservative party pressured him to resign as prime minister. They feared his lies about government get-togethers that violated COVID restrictions would cost them at the polls. A committee report has ruled that Johnson did lie to Parliament, and he resigned last week from the legislature. Brian Kloss is a political scientist at University College London. There's been erosions of democracy in the time I've been here in Britain. There's no question about that. But there's been more punchback from the forces of institutional order and from the voters that are punishing those who actually do this. And Kloss says that's one reason why the Conservative Party, which Johnson recently dominated, is on track to lose the next election by a big margin. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll take a look at today's top local stories in a moment. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Boston's plans to spend $80 million on city hall maintenance over the next five years. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, honoring artists who banded together more than 40 years ago to buy an old warehouse and form the first artist co-op building in Massachusetts. See art commemorating the co-op at 249A Street, on view now at Atlantic Wharf Gallery, fortpointarts.org. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. North Korea test-fired two short-range ballistic missiles today. That's according to South Korea and Japan. The launches follow the largest live-fire exercises on record involving the U.S. and South Korea. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is reaffirming the U.S.'s long-term support for Ukraine as Ukrainian troops continue to fight Russian forces who invaded the country nearly 16 months ago. Ukrainian forces have shown outstanding bravery and skill. And Ukraine's fight is a marathon and not a sprint. Austin was speaking today in Brussels ahead of a meeting of NATO defense ministers. The Greek Coast Guard says the death toll stands at 79 after a fishing boat capsized off southern Greece this week. It was carrying hundreds of migrants when it sank, and authorities fear the death toll will end up being much higher. As Lydia Emanuliudou reports from Athens, questions are being raised about the boat. The EU border agency Frontex said in a statement that its surveillance aircraft spotted the boat on Tuesday morning and that it informed Greek and Italian authorities. The Greek Coast Guard says its offer to assist the vessel was rejected by those on board because they wanted to reach Italy. Refugee advocates are questioning that claim and say more could have been done to bring the people to safety before the boat capsized. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A new council of higher education and civil rights leaders plans to help the Healy administration navigate the expected Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action. The ruling is on whether colleges can consider race in the admissions process, and it is expected soon. The case also has ties to Harvard. The Healy administration's so-called Advisory Council for the Advancement of Representation and Education consists of local college leaders, civil rights advocates, and students. The administration says the council's goal is to figure out how to keep Massachusetts educational institutions inclusive. Massachusetts lawmakers face a deadline today to formally set a date for the state's tax holiday. Lawmakers announced this week that they plan to hold the holiday the weekend of August 12th and 13th. The tax holiday is when the six and a quarter percent sales tax is suspended for most items. A new tourist attraction at top of the Prudential Center opens today. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell has more on View Boston. The three-floor observatory sits more than 50 stories above the street. It features sweeping views, an outdoor viewing deck, and interactive experiences. VIEW Boston spokeswoman Rebecca Stoddard says the attraction is meant to provide visitors with a macro look at the city. Our goal with VIEW Boston was to provide the best view of the city that we could from the top of one of Boston's most iconic office towers, which is the Prudential Tower. And we wanted to provide an experience where everyone visiting Boston would make View Boston its first visit. Tickets start at $35 and can be purchased online or in person. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. The time is 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. In sports, Red Sox beat the Colorado Rockies 6-3 at Fenway last night. The Sox are off today. They host the Yankees tomorrow. Our forecast, sunny today. Highs in the upper 70s. Clear skies overnight tonight. Temperatures around 60 degrees. Tomorrow, some storms possible in the afternoon. Warm, though. Temperatures in the low to mid 80s tomorrow. And for the weekend, shower Saturday, cloud Sunday. Temperatures both weekend days 
around 70 degrees. It's 62 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Southern Baptists are cracking down on women in ministry. They did so this week at their annual meeting by voting to finalize the expulsion of two congregations with women pastors and moving to change their own constitution. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports. Earlier this year, Southern Baptist leaders expelled Fern Creek Baptist Church in Kentucky, where a woman has led the congregation for decades, and well-known Saddleback, the megachurch in Southern California where a woman serves as campus pastor. Those expulsions were based on a document passed in the year 2000 called the Baptist Faith and Message, which restricts the office of pastor to men. Meeting in New Orleans, nearly 13,000 delegates called messengers, predominantly white men, heard appeals from the expelled churches, but those appeals failed. Then they turned to an amendment to the Southern Baptist Constitution itself that says the church affirms, appoints, or employs only men as any kind of pastor or elder. Sarah Clathworthy of LifePoint Baptist Church in San Angelo, Texas, was among the smaller group of women messengers. She spoke in favor of the amendment. We must stand our ground and keep the door shut to feminism and liberalism. In a culture that is increasingly unclear about the roles of men and women, or what a man or woman is, we have to be crystal clear. Clathworthy said that her church believes women shouldn't teach men or hold religious authority over them. We should leave no room for our daughters and granddaughters in the generations ahead to have confusion on where the SBCC stands. Let them know that scripture is our authority and not the culture. But that belief isn't uniform among all Southern Baptists. Bob Bender, pastor emeritus of Cross Fellowship Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, defended the right of women to serve as pastors. Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, I beg of you, do not do this. All the liberals have left us. It looks like we conservatives are left to fight amongst ourselves. Bender hearkened back to the Southern Baptist Convention's past to underscore his point. Southern Baptists have been right on a lot of things and wrong on a few. We were wrong on slavery, segregation, alien immersion, and disallowing biblically divorced men to become deacons. History will prove us wrong again if we adopt this motion. In the end, the amendment banning women pastors passed. Next year's Southern Baptist Convention meeting will have to pass it again before it officially takes effect. Jason DeRose, NPR News. 
China has an unemployment problem. The latest figures were published today, and they weren't great. Overall, unemployment for May was 5.2 percent. But for young Chinese, those in the 16 to 24 age range, unemployment hit a record 20.8 percent. NPR's John Ruwich investigates why that number is so high. The Lama Temple in Beijing is a labyrinth of shrines and courtyards filled with incense, smoke, and people. In one corner, there's a room where a monk chants prayers and rings a bell. Visitors in batches of a couple dozen at a time rotate through for a few minutes each. Inside, they hold aloft bracelets of prayer beads to get blessed. A lot of the visitors these days are like Rachel Gao and Jose Chiu, who've come from Shanghai. We are graduating soon and we need to find jobs. We're doing this to have a little... how do I say it? Paying money to have someone watch over us. Gao and Chiu are graduate students at a top university in Shanghai, studying economics and math. They're in Beijing for an internship, and they took half a day off to come to the Lama Temple. We're considered people with pretty good educations, and we face really heavy employment pressure. So I can't imagine what the pressure is like for undergrads or people from not-so-great schools. The pressure is bad. Six months after the government ended strict COVID controls, the economy is still struggling to bounce back. The private sector is hobbled by unfavorable policies, and uncertainty about the future is widespread. Young people have been flocking to the Lama Temple from around the country, lining up for hours to buy prayer beads here, hoping the charmed bracelets can boost their job prospects. Whether you believe in it or not, it's worth a try, right? This is definitely an unemployment crisis for Chinese youth. Wang Dan is chief economist for China at Hang Seng Bank in Shanghai. A lot of the companies in big cities, they're trying to do restructuring this year, so they don't try to even hire the fresh graduates. There are expected to be a record 11.6 million fresh graduates this year, many bringing high expectations to the job market. So the authorities are trying to temper that, encouraging them to think outside the box. In Guangdong province, for instance, the local government wants young people to go into the countryside for work. And state media have been promoting a catchphrase from China's leader Xi Jinping. Meaning, seek out your own hardship. For 25-year-old Alex Luo, just landing a job has been a hardship of its own. Luo studied design in college, but can't find work in the field. When we meet her at a job fair in Shanghai, she says she's already sent out a few hundred resumes. I did hear back from some, but then you talk about salary and benefits and working hours, right? And it often doesn't fit. Most of the companies here are looking for salespeople. Luo says she'd be fine with that, even though it doesn't have anything to do with what she studied. And that kind of mismatch highlights a potential problem for policymakers, says Jin Keiyu, an associate professor at the London School of Economics. You have master's students lining up in cigarette factories or becoming nannies in order to uh, be employed. So that, that leaves um, a significant portion of the, the population and their families quite disgruntled. And that, Jin says, could make it harder for the government to address some of China's thorniest long-term challenges. Unless their expectations are filled, they're not going to get married, which is a big problem. You know, they might not want to have kids because of the anxiety and the insecurity and the uncertainty. 
Um, so it leads to a host of present pressing problems. More and more college graduates are punting, applying for graduate programs to delay reality a little bit. Back at the Lama Temple in Beijing, Jose Chiu just shakes his head. In our school, there were more grad students who entered this year than undergrads. So it feels like there's no advantage to getting a graduate degree. The only thing you can do is suck it up and keep on trying. And maybe pick up some prayer beads, too. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, countries like China look to chip away at the dominance of the dollar. In our forecast, mostly sunny today, temperatures in the upper 70s, clear overnight tonight with lows around 60. Tomorrow, increasing clouds, a chance of storms in the afternoon, temperatures in the lower 80s. It is 63 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. In business news, Boston-based Santander Bank will close five more of its Massachusetts locations. The Boston Business Journal reports those include branches in Danvers and Worcester. There's no timeline for the closures. Earlier this year, the bank announced plans to close 16 other branches across Massachusetts. Puma will relocate two of its local teams overseas next month. The clothing brand says its brand management and marketing operations will move from its Somerville offices to its headquarters in Germany. Eight people will be laid off as a result. Connecticut-based Eblin's clothing store will soon shut down all of its locations, and that includes at least 10 stores in Massachusetts. The streetwear chain has locations throughout greater Boston and in Worcester. Eblin's has not set official closing dates, but store leaders say it will probably happen by the end of this summer. The time is 8.44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu success. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Some consider Boston City Hall a marvel of 1960s brutalist architecture. Others call it ugly. No matter how you spin it, the 55-year-old landmark needs a lot of repairs. WBUR's Walter Wuthman recently spent a day exploring the mechanical guts of City Hall from the basement to the roof. I'm standing on top of Boston City Hall with Walter Palohofsky, the building's chief power plant engineer. He carefully steps around a screaming seagull. Okay, baby, we won't bother you. Right? I don't bother them, they don't bother me. We're here to check out a set of metal cooling towers. These massive units regulate the air temperature for some 2,000 people working in the nine stories below. 
Paluhovsky is part handyman, part detective, and he's seen a lot in two decades at City Hall. He tells me about the time he had to come up with a quick fix for a big leak up here. I thought I have the pictures from the time when I put the tarp on the side of the tower to keep the water in. A blue tarp? Yes. Did that work? Yes, I kept the water in. And I have a couple of hoses, you know, garden hoses to, to maintain the water. You have to, you know, you have to sometimes think what to do, you know, to, to keep running. <laughs> Boston City Hall is a bit of a Frankenstein. Its HVAC systems were repaired and replaced in a patchwork over the years, resulting in a mix of old and new that only a maestro like Palohovsky can keep running. We head down a dark metal staircase to the basement. Palohovsky checks a backup chiller for City Hall's data center. It's one of the most important rooms in the whole building and one of the hottest. 24-7 we have to supply uh, chill water to those chillers. Otherwise, probably in two hours, they will get so hot over there that those computers might even just fail to run. The chillers are working fine today. The system is pretty new. The big problem now is the building's original 1960s hot water pipes. The designers of City Hall apparently didn't think much about the possibility of pipes bursting or leaking or how to get at them. Many of the original pipes are nearly inaccessible, completely encased in layers of concrete. We've had leaks in that piping over the years. We've had, actually had to core into that concrete just to be able to repair and actually identify the leak. That's Eamon Shelton, Boston's Commissioner of Property Management. They're now replacing all the hot water pipes as part of the $80 million the city expects to spend on city hall maintenance over the next five years. Experts in 1960s brutalist architecture say many buildings from the period are suffering from these kinds of maintenance issues. Mark Pasnick is a professor of architecture at Wentworth and the author of a book on Boston City Hall. He admits the architect's artistic ambition may have outweighed some practical concerns. In a lot of ways, I think maybe they were tied up by their desire to make a building that was a total work of art. Pasnick thinks the building is worth preserving for aesthetic reasons, but also because it's less costly than starting over. To me, we have one of the most impressive, robust, complex, challenging city halls in the country, maybe in the world, and I am very glad to see it get a new life. Of course, many people disagree. Former Mayor Tom Menino even proposed selling off the property and relocating to the waterfront, saying the building was, quote, unfriendly and cold. Mayor Michelle Wu has an entirely different take. City Hall is an architectural treasure. I don't care what anyone else says about the appearance. Wu says she's committed to funding the building's long-delayed maintenance needs. Of course, it's always easier to create something new or put money to a new announcement rather than do the more boring or simple um, hidden tasks of regular maintenance to make sure that things can last longer in the long run. Even as City Hall gets an upgrade, it's losing its chief caretaker. Walter Palohovsky says he's getting ready to retire. He's trying to teach all his secrets to a new generation of City Hall operations workers. It's quite a little bit to learn it. It's not just looking at the screen and sit in the, in the control room. You have to be in the field, you know, because some things you still have to manually adjust. Polohovsky heads to the stairs and descends back into the concrete fortress of City Hall. He hopes a fresh infusion of money and a new set of stewards can take this quirky old building into the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
coming up at 9 o'clock on WBUR. It's the BBC News Hour. Among the stories they're bringing us today, the latest on the cyclone hitting India and Pakistan, plus efforts by global soccer leaders to fight racism among players. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here are some of the stories that WBUR is following for you this Thursday morning. Rescuers are searching for survivors after a boat carrying migrants capsized off the coast of Greece and killed 78 people. Pope Francis is expected to be discharged from the hospital tomorrow after having abdominal surgery. And in Cambridge, the deans of Harvard Medical School say they're appalled and they will investigate after the school's former morgue manager was charged with stealing and selling human body parts. You can get the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Forecast says sunshine today. Highs in the upper 70s. 63 degrees in Boston. Dare we start talking about a time when interest rates stop rising and are allowed to actually fall? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The guardians of interest rates held things steady yesterday. That decision comes with a state-of-the-art assessment of the U.S. economy. And Marketplace Washington correspondent Nancy Marshall-Genzer was there as Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell went through the information at hand about jobs, growth, inflation, and, of course, the cost of borrowing. Nancy? Well, David, the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, is, of course, the panel that made the decision on rates yesterday. Powell said it just needs time to assess the effect of its series of rate hikes. He emphasized the Fed has already raised interest rates by five percentage points, but inflation is still too high. Of course, the Fed hikes rates to cool the economy by making it more expensive to borrow and spend. Now, this gang meets again next month. Chair Powell, leave any hints? He said July will be a live meeting. That is, a decision on interest rates will be made at that two-day meeting. It's not predetermined. Uh, The Fed did get out its crystal ball yesterday, though. It makes economic projections every three months. And it is projecting that interest rates will hit 5.6% by the end of this year. That implies two more rate hikes in 2023. Would it be overreaching to wonder if Powell spoke of actually cutting interest rates? Yes, it would. Uh, 
Powell pretty much ruled that out for this year. He said, just look at these economic projections from the members of the FOMC. Not a single person on the committee wrote down a rate cut this year, nor do I think it is uh, at all likely to be appropriate if you think about it. Uh, inflation has not really moved down. It has it not uh, so far reacted much to our, to our existing rate hikes, and so we're going to have to keep at it. David, the Fed is predicting a possible rate cut next year, though. Thank you. And the European Central Bank just announced it is raising interest rates by a quarter point. The rate is now the highest in Europe for 22 years. The world's first set of comprehensive regulations governing artificial intelligence is taking shape across the Atlantic. EU tech rules often help shape U.S. regulation. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. The rules European Union lawmakers adopted address a host of artificial intelligence use cases, including chatbots. They require tech companies to document any copyrighted material used to train chatbots and to disclose chatbot-created content. AI systems used by major social media platforms, those targeted to children and used for hiring, will all face transparency requirements and will have to reduce the risk of bias in algorithms. AI use for facial recognition and biometric identification in public places would be banned. There's also a ban on AI-based predictive tools and emotion recognition systems used for policing and other applications. The approval from EU lawmakers is subject to ratification from the bloc's 27 member states. Final approval could come as soon as the end of the year. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Markets, S&P futures are down five-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down seven-tenths percent. And a tentative contract deal has been reached with union dock workers and the port operators at 29 ports from San Diego to Seattle. Details are still under wraps. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance, providing direct car insurance rates side-by-side with other insurance carriers. Customers can see rates and find an option that works for their needs. Now that's Progressive. Learn more at Progressive.com. And by Odoo, a full suite of integrated business management software dedicated to helping businesses of all sizes with billing, accounting, CRM, and e-commerce. Odoo.com. And by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. A key selling point of community college is the ability to transfer to a four-year college and save money. Yet, the Government Accountability Office finds that 43% of all community college credits don't end up transferring. Now, students are getting more vocal about getting credit where it's due. Here's GBH reporter Kirk Carapeza. To get a head start on his bachelor's degree while still in high school, William Kamani took courses at a community college in Brockton, Massachusetts. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Kamani is the son of Kenyan immigrants. He earned enough credits to graduate high school not only with a diploma, but an associate degree. But when he enrolled at the University of Chicago, he learned a hard lesson in college economics. None of his credits would count. Zero. Getting the email saying that none of them were going to get transferred was, was, was quite painful because I feel like the degree that I worked towards was a lot of work, a lot of effort. In a statement, a spokesperson for the University of Chicago says transfer credits must come from institutions that grant bachelor's degrees. Nearly all community college students hope to transfer their credits and earn a bachelor's degree. But historically, very few of them realize that goal. Only one in six ever succeed. Four-year institutions often require students to take their classes. Colleges are businesses. 
Francesca Purcell lectures at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and she says there's a big incentive to accept students. There is not a big incentive to accept all of their credits. Why not? Given the financial situation that most four-year institutions are in, they need to survive. And that comes at the expense of low-income students like Simba Gandhari. He had to fight to transfer his credits from a technical school in South Carolina to a four-year college in Wisconsin. It started to feel as if I was just another body and another way to make tuition. Harvard's Francesca Purcell sees fixing the credit pipeline as a diversity opportunity. If we could solve student transfer from community colleges would serve the highest numbers of students from low-income families from students of color, it would truly be transformative. Some four-year institutions that don't accept community college credits do recognize advanced placement credits. And research shows Black and Indigenous students have unequal access to AP coursework. Back in Chicago, William Kamani says that exposes these institutions as businesses that tend to enroll white and Asian students. I think it kind of shows ingrained inequality, preferences towards, you know, suburban, more affluent students. And he says it shows where college's priorities really are. In Boston, I'm Kirk Carapeza for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Our weather forecast, sunshine today. Temperatures in the upper 70s, clear tonight with lows in the 60s. Cloudy tomorrow, maybe storms in the afternoon and temperatures tomorrow in the low 80s. It is 63 degrees in Boston at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. BBC is next. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.